Uh, this morning is Sunday, June 27th. Our message this morning is going to be called High Places. Before we get into the message, though, I wanted you to know about uh, the prophecy that we gave this morning. Cassidy's making fun of me out there. <laughs> um, yeah, going up to the high places, good stuff. I didn't even think about it. The prophecy this morning, I want you to know as I was talking to you before we started the CD about being able to turn on and off prophecy. Sometimes you dwell on a prophecy, you dwell on thoughts about prophesying, and God gives you a prophecy. It's your desire that seems to open that up, uh, just like many spiritual gifts. Other times it seems almost involuntary. Not that he makes you speak, but you weren't thinking about it, you were thinking about something else, and an outside thought intrudes your thoughts. This morning was just like that. I didn't go over this in my mind before it came out of my mouth. I didn't think about it. I was simply worshiping God. If I thought about prophecy at all, it was about somebody else prophesying. And a thought hit me from the outside in. And as soon as it did, I began to speak so that I didn't have the opportunity to polish it or clean it. And this is worth getting on the CD. It's worth y'all hearing. I even wrote it down, which is not normally my practice. said uh, something along these lines. And as I wrote it, you know, I'm, I paraphrased because I don't remember everything that I said. But it said, keep your eyes on me, little church and not on the waves or the storms around you. Keep your eyes on me, for the days are coming when I will make you like a magnet that draws precious metals from the earth, my choice building materials. The church will be built with precious stones of my choice. Keep your eyes on me and not on the inventions of men. Trust me and not the work of your own arm, for you are mine. I will do this. Keep your eyes on me. Y'all... That is so beautiful. And that was God's thought that got interjected in me, and I got the opportunity to speak it. If we are faithful to God, not to some building program, not to uh, some marketing uh, program, I mean, that's odd. I'm a marketing director. Trust me, I can write them. Uh, I mean, we, we can do it. But that's God is saying don't work with the inventions of men. Don't lean on your own arm. To do this, he is going to make this church like a magnet that only draws the precious metals that he chooses to build with. You know, and I, I think of a hundred scriptures as I'm thinking about that, and I don't, I don't want to preach on that this morning. Tuck that away. Let that be a memorial stone in your life. Say, Lord, how can I be more like a magnet that draws the metals you choose? There's all kind of metals out there that are useful for building, but may not be God's choice. We see people and we say, oh, they'd make a good fit in the church, and we work towards that. We need the ones that God wants. And here's the real trick. About half the time, whether we're talking about precious stones or we're talking about precious metals, when you first look at it, you don't see it for what it is. It takes a little refining. It takes a little process to reveal what's really inside. It's been my experience in life that the guys that Jesus has drawn me to work with the most the ones that I've had the opportunity to disciple, see, be saved, see being saved, see get filled with the Holy Ghost and all, were usually not the ones I looked at right away and said, oh, that's a precious metal. In fact, I have a natural tendency to want to discard because I see things that aren't precious metal. And those are just the ones that God picks. So file that away in your heart. I think it's worth, worth keeping. Uh, did everybody get a chance to listen to The Dreamer? I made CDs for people. It's an older message. Uh, okay. 
If you, if you haven't yet, please do find time this week to listen to it. Almost everybody has. The reason being, there have been some times in my life where weird things happen. I mean, uncanny things. In October of 1997, I prophesied a prophecy at the Church King's Harvest and believed that it was for a man there. And as soon as I sat down, there was a guest missionary that morning. I realized that probably was not for the man there. In fact, I've even got the story wrong. I'm sorry. I never prophesied it. I had a prophecy. There was no place in worship to give it. It didn't seem appropriate. And I thought, oh, well, it's for that guy. So I'll write it down and I'll give it to him. As I began to write it down, Buzz grabbed uh, a microphone. And he began to speak to me as led by the Spirit. And I was ordained publicly then. Well, I listened to the words he said and looked at the words that I wrote on the paper. And I realized exactly what was written was for me, not the other person that I was thinking. And so I had this thing that was beautiful, that was confirmed by two or more witnesses, both personally and there, that was beautiful to me. And it mentioned some things I didn't understand about not allowing my heart to get hard and all kind of really negative things in the midst of a really beautiful prophecy. I shoved it in a book at home, put it on a bookshelf. 97 went by, 98 went by, 99 went by, 2000 went by. In the year 2000, I moved to Lafayette. 2001 went by. Sometime in the year 2001, I moved for the third time in Lafayette. And while we were moving, I was in kind of a a broken, hard place. And out of a book falls this prophecy. And I read it. And you know what it, it talked about? That very place I was at in life right then. And it told me exactly what to do. Now, I never could have known that. I never could have planned it. God did that. Well, when I listened to The Dreamer, which was a message from December, when I preached that, and you can hear it on the CD, I thought I was preaching at some people that were sitting here. Okay? There are three people here at that time that are no longer here now. And when I said preaching at them, I don't mean that I didn't have good intentions. I did, but I thought it revolved around things that were going on in other people's lives. Now more than six months has passed since that message was first given. I made CDs for some people in Baton Rouge, and I didn't want to give them to them until I had listened to them, but I didn't have time. So Jennifer made copies of the CDs. She wrote on the Dreamer CD a label that said, listen to. That was it. I didn't see it. I wasn't here when she did it. I left, went out of town, came back, and and I'm thinking, Lord, what do I need to be doing right now? Should I be listening to the Word on CD? Should I be studying? What do you want me to do right now? I looked over at the counter, and there's a message. And it says, listen to. Now, only God could do this kind of stuff, right? So I thought it was kind of corny, but I couldn't get over the fact that I just asked God. I looked down, and there's a CD right there that says, listen to me. You know? So I picked it up, went and put it in the car. And uh, as I went throughout that day, I listened to it. Lord have mercy if it did not detail exactly what's been going on in the church in the last two weeks and give me strength and encouragement. It absolutely did. I'm not trying to bore you all with these testimonies. Things that seem insignificant at the time, but that you feel the twinge of the Spirit. You feel some kind of quickening. File them away. You never know how that will come back to bless you. And remember... God's the kind of God that would let his people have mud on their face for 2,000 years, divorced from their land, look as if the promises had totally failed, all theologians write that they had, replace Israel with the church, 
only to in our day, almost 2,000 years later, bring his promise about. He doesn't mind you feeling like he gave up. I mean, he does, but he's willing to let it happen. He doesn't mind that he looks like his promises have failed because it's a bigger testimony when it does happen. He announced it in advance. In Isaiah, he said, hey, go find them if you can. Are there any other nations who foretold this kind of thing before it happened? Go find them. Where are they? I think that's Isaiah 35. I, I read it to y'all in the message uh, on Aliyah. This morning's going to be high places. One of the things that that message, the dreamer, did for me is it reminded me, and I'll, y'all get a visual of this, the long bows that are in the movies like uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, the bows that stand as long as you are tall. You pick out your target. You have an arrow intended for it. You put the arrow in the bow. It's pointed at the target, right? And if you were an arrow, you would think, oh, praise God, I'm fixing to go hit that target. But the problem is, as the master draws that bow, the arrow gets further and further and further away from the target. It's still pointed at it, but it feels like it's going the wrong direction. And it must feel like a horrible thing for the arrow. I thought I was going to the target. I thought you told me. I thought this was why I was formed. This was my very purpose. Look, I got this charaded head pointed to fly through the air. I got feathers that direct me. I'm long. I'm straight. I'm made of a certain kind of wood. This is what I'm for. And I'm going the wrong direction. Master, you don't know what you're doing. You know, what's wrong with you? And the whole time you're being drawn back, you are gaining the necessary strength to ultimately propel you forward to the target. That was the whole message in the dreamer. And I used Joseph's life as an example. The guy had these visions. People hated him because he had the visions. They hated him because he was loved by the Father. He found opposition for no other reason than God told him to do something. Just like us. We find opposition when God tells us to do something. If we just sit on a log and say, hey, we're blessed. We want you blessed. Let's all be blessed. Nobody, there's no opposition. Everybody loves you. Even the lost love you. They'll buy your books if you write them. But when you're called to do something, there's inherently opposition. Israel was attacked by most nations around them, by relatives, by all of those things, because they were called for a purpose. If they had no purpose, if they were just, you know, any old lump on a log, they wouldn't be attacked. But they're attacked because of a purpose. We need to look at the drawing back as ultimately propelling us forward. Joseph, because of his dreams, was persecuted. He didn't realize that the step back as he went into the well was ultimately going to prepare him for the future. He didn't realize that the step back as he was declared a rapist in Potiphar's house would ultimately propel him forward. He didn't realize that the step back, nobody remembering what he had done for them in prison, would ultimately prepare him to fulfill those dreams. He didn't even know that when he became Zophanoth Panea and he interpreted dreams and all of those things, that ultimately that was going to bring about God's vision until it happened. And then he could look at the prophecy in the rearview mirror of his life and go, wow, every event built on the other to bring this about. Well, our lives are no different. Theirs were just laid out as an example for us who believe. With that in mind, this church has a vision. We have visions for our own lives, and then we have a collective vision. Uh, for instance, right now the Piro's life vision involves having a child. That's, that's part of their life vision. Whereas there are others in here that that may not be the case right now. So their individual life's vision might be a little different than your individual life vision, but altogether we're called to accomplish certain things. 
as we do that, I want you to be aware of a couple principles. Y'all see, I have some props back here. We're going to go over that. And uh, hopefully we will be done with this within an hour so that you're able to get it, digest it, and it become part of your life. Turn to Daniel 9. On the idea of hanging on to your vision, on the idea of being drawn back from your vision at times so that you can ultimately achieve it, prayer is an important thing. If you, uh, wow, Ezekiel, my pages are sticking together. Daniel, uh, for those listening to the CD, if you turn to the middle of your Bible and then begin to, begin to hang a right, you'll eventually find Daniel. Those with the Thompson chain, Daniel 9 is on page 992. I received a little advice from some CD listeners that I'm trying to put into practice here. Uh, We're in Daniel 9 now. Listen to this. It says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Who was Jeremiah and what did he prophesy about? Jeremiah was a prophet of God called to the nation of Israel, and he prophesied to them. You remember which books he wrote? You know he wrote Jeremiah. What else did he write? Lamentations. He prophesied to them that a foreign power, Babylon, would come, would conquer them, carry them off into captivity. And then Lamentations is his writings as he sees it happening. So he lived just before the Babylonian exile and maybe some during the Babylonian exile. It depends on who you read. Most say that he did. So he and Daniel were somewhat contemporaries. He would be much older than Daniel, but uh, their lives may have overlapped. And what is Daniel doing in Babylon? According to this, he's sitting there and he is contemplating. He's meditating upon the prophecies of Jeremiah. He's probably reading them just like you would read the Scripture. And he learned that Jerusalem, the desolation of Jerusalem, would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Now, we could read this whole chapter and... You would find a lot of really neat things. Daniel was contrite for things that he personally didn't do because he realized he was a part of a bigger people group and he prayed for them. He prayed for their forgiveness and included himself and their number. All kind of teachings on this and people usually try to apply it to the United States, which is just just like an American. Here's what I, I was overwhelmed with as I was thinking about this, though. How long did Jeremiah's prophecy say that the desolation of Jerusalem would last? Seventy years, right? The Babylonian captivity is going to take place over 70 years, 580 B.C. to 510. So why pray about it? Why pray about it? Because his prayer is praying about the ending of it, about the restoring to the land, about forgiveness, about all of those things. Not because they're righteous, but because God's great. Why pray? It's already determined. Somebody was reading the Gospel of John recently and said, if, if Jesus knew everything was going to happen, why do it? You know, I mean, why go through the whole charade? Why pray if the, defense, if the event is predetermined? Everybody's looking at me with blank stares. You know, I hope that's thought-provoking. There's another one 
in Matthew 24. Y'all remember it? Okay, we'll, we'll turn there. Turn to Matthew. The idea I want you to get from Daniel 9 is that the event was prophesied in advance. It was predetermined. It would last 70 years or else God's a liar. But Daniel still felt the need to pray about it. In Matthew 24, which is the first book in the New Testament. What's that? In Matthew 24, you see on Thompson Chain page 1102. No. Oops. 1100. Page 1100. This phrase. This is chapter 24, verse 18 on page 1100. Let... I'm sorry. Uh, Verse 19. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. What is Matthew 24 about? The end times. Jesus said that the Father had a day and hour. And it wasn't for him to know. We all believe that when Jesus ascended to the right hand, all authority on heaven and earth was given to him. Now he does now. But even of this event, the most climactic event in human history, that all of the Old Testament prophets looked forward to, the day of the Lord, all of them prophesied forward about the day of the Lord in some way. All of the New Testament books revolve around the second coming of Jesus and the day of the Lord. And Jesus tells you to pray that it doesn't take place on a Sabbath or in the winter. It is a predetermined event, and yet you're told to pray. Daniel's Babylonian captivity was a predetermined event, and yet you're told to pray. Kind of confusing. Why? I mean, we could have this argument with Presbyterians all day long, couldn't we? It's predetermined. Why do we pray? We're the frozen chosen, right? Turn with me to Revelation, and let's see if this adds a little clarity to it. Revelation, last book of the New Testament, not so uh, easy to find if you have a bunch of maps and stuff in in your book. You know, Uh, We're going to be in Revelation 8. If you're in the Thompson chain, that's page 1370. Those of you that don't have Thompson chains will eventually go get them if I keep doing this, huh? This is uh, Revelation 8 and verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayer of all the saints. Incense and prayer in the Bible are intertwined. They burned incense while they prayed. They had incense censers that they would swing. Y'all ever seen our, our Roman friends? You know, to, to look holy, they got these golden incense, you know, like they're pretending to be Jewish, right? And, uh, and they're, they're smoking, and that smoke is supposed to symbolize prayer that goes up to the heavens, right? Well, listen to what this angel has. He was given much incense to offer with, with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together 
with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hands. So do you think it's fair to say that this censer with incense rising and the prayers of the saints, that they're all intertwined, right? I mean, it looks like it. He was given one with the other, and they're all in a censer. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The prayers of the saints on the earth, together with some kind of heavenly incense, filled a censer that the angel then threw to the earth to cause changes in the earth. Now, I don't know how much of that is symbolic and how much of it was absolutely literal, and it doesn't matter. Here's what you begin to see. God determined ahead of time the Babylonian captivity, the length. But what had to happen? Angels still had to move. Censors still had to be thrown to cause the things to happen. What is the censor filled with? The prayers of the saints and the incense. Jesus tells us these things will happen. He gives you all the signs that they're going to happen. He says, but pray that it doesn't on this day or at this time. For God's predetermined events to happen, you still have to pray because it moves the heavenlies and causes His predetermined events to happen. So which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Does God determine that there will be people who will pray so that His predetermined events happen? I don't know. I know that He reserves for Himself a remnant who will do His will. And we get to choose who that will be. You know, when God tells you to get out of bed and pray, do you always do it? Do you? Come on, y'all answer me. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. You feel a burden from a dream to get up and pray. Do you always do that? Do you do it one out of five times? Two out of five? Three out of five? Okay, I'm sure most of y'all are four out of five times. But here, here's the thing. If you don't, and prayer still has to take place for the predetermined events to happen on the earth, somebody else has to. He's looking for the obedient. That's why obedience is better than sacrifice. It's why his eyes are roaming the earth, seeking those whose hearts are fully committed to him, that he might strengthen them. They cause his will to come about. And if you won't do it, somebody else will. Now let's bring this back to our dreamer message and to where we're going with the high places. What happens is you're given vision like we're given vision. And as the drawing starts to happen, you start to go back. At first you pray because your life's in turmoil. And you act like it's something strange, like it shouldn't be happening. When God calls us, we're supposed to be blessed. We're supposed to see it happen. We're supposed to see it. We're supposed to take the kingdom. When the reality is when God calls it, it becomes normal for you to not see it. It becomes normal for you to be surrounded by chaos, for you to be surrounded by trouble, because every power of hell will try to prevent your calling, and God uses that to propel you towards your calling, just like the boat. What's that have to do with prayer? The way that the things that God tells you to ha- are going to happen in your life come about is by people praying. Because the angels have to move the heavens. The angels still have to do those natural things. And they can't do it without the prayer of the saints on the earth. If you won't pray about the things God's told you, who will? If somebody has to do it, if he has to reserve a remnant to do it, and you won't, you, the one that it most affects, won't. How many other people does he have to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning to do it before he finds one that will? They asked Paul Youngie Cho, 
what's the difference between the Korean church and the American church? And without hesitation, he said, the Koreans are more serious. Um, he stopped. He looked around, realized that this was going to be offensive to the American audience. He said, in Korea, sometimes it means more to be a Christian. But what he wanted to say is Korean Christians are more serious. They have a prayer mountain where they pray 24 hours a day. There is no less than thousands of people praying 24 hours a day. They're not just praying for themselves, especially if they're praying in, in an unknown language. They're probably praying for you. God's work gets done when the earth produces prayers that go to Him and the angels act upon them. That censer had to be filled with incense and the prayer of the saints. And then the earthquakes, the thunder, all of those things that were predetermined, Jesus said that happened in Matthew 24, happened. What if the saints didn't pray? He has to find some that do. Okay, you all with me so far? So about your calling, it should be a subject of prayer. You want to serve your brother? You want to wash your brother's feet? You want to do something good for your brother? Pray for them as well. Because it doesn't happen without prayer. And if you, here, here's the real thing, if you think somebody else's prayer life is not very good, the best thing you can do is pray for them. Right? Because it's got to get there. I don't know why. I don't know why God set it up that way. I don't understand why faith has to work the way faith does. But we can see that it does. I can argue all day long about whether or not gravity should work the way that it does. But at the end of the day, it works that way whether I want it to or not. These are some spiritual principles you need to get hold of. Prayer moves the heavens. Without it, the heavens don't move. If you won't pray, somebody else has got to pray. Now you begin to understand why intercessory prayer is such a high calling, huh? Why a little old lady who's 80 years old who's on her knees praying is just as powerful as an 18-year-old muscle-bound uh, evangelist, right? Because prayer has to happen. Now, in our life, some things that cause us to not achieve our calling, that cause us to get sidetracked, to be hurt, wounded, all of those things are some wrong thoughts. So we're going to clear some of these up. We tend to think that the prayer of Jabez ought to be working in our life all the time. The Lord ought to be extending our tents and blessing us all of the time. That that's, that's what our lives ought to be. It doesn't matter that when we look at the original 12 apostles, that that's not what we see in their lives. That when we look at Jesus' life, that's not what we see in his life. It doesn't matter that the Jewish apostle Paul, who became an apostle also to the Gentiles, didn't have that happen in his life. That... When you study his life, you see hardship after hardship after hardship, and that's why you love him. We somehow think that all of those blessing scriptures ought to apply to us all of the time. You ought to have more today than you did yesterday. You, and, and, and here's it in a nutshell. Whatever blessing Mandy got in her life, Eric better have in his. Because this is a rule. If God gave her a certain amount of money and a financial blessing, then he's got to give it to me too. Where is that rule? And why would it be there? It's not. But this is what that whole prosperity gospel is based on, right? Here's the misconception. Turn with me to Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is pretty well. You take the middle of your Bible. You open it almost to the dead middle. And uh, you ought to be in Psalms. If you're not, then focus on opening to the middle of the Old Testament rather than just the New. And Psalm 91... And the Thompson chain is on page nine, on page 665. Psalm 91, page 665. Here's the thing. 
Well, we'll read part of it and I'll, I'll explain. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. What does that sound like? You're going to rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He's my refuge. He's my fortress. What do we see so far? Yeah, well, that's what you see because you're smart. You know what most people see? Wow, I'm going to rest in the shade. If I'm with God, I'm going to rest in the shade. He's going to protect. They read Psalm 121. The moon won't smite you by night and the sun by day. You know, he's going to preserve. You're going out and you're coming in. They read all of the blessing scriptures. I'll make you a blessing so you can bless others. And churches chant, I'm a blessing to bless. And all of those things, which is all true. It's all good. And we totally take it out of its context. See, the whole point of the gospel is misunderstood. The whole point of your calling is misunderstood. What we consider natural is wrong. If you are called of God, here's what is natural for you. Hardships, trials, suffering. In those hardships, trials, and suffering, you will be blessed thoroughly. But hardships, trials, and suffering are natural for the children of God. Why? Because you are called for a purpose. You have to be drawn back from the bow. You have to be resisted by the enemy or he wouldn't be your enemy. Satan means opposition. He's opposing what God's trying to do in you. So the norm for you are hardships. And now when we begin to look around us, though, what is the norm for lost people? Uh, Sweden. Can you think of a war they've been in recently? No, me either. I can't think of a war they've ever been in, although I'm not a you know, big history major, at least not outside biblical history. And you might look at a country like Sweden that hasn't had a lot of war and go, wow, they seem relatively peaceful. That could be a good place to live, right? There's no tragedy there. Sometimes as Christians, because our lives are a constant struggle, the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness, we look at those that have chosen to try to remain neutral in this battle. Those that don't say they're evil, and they don't say that they're, I mean, they say that they're good, but they're not sold out for God. They're trying to remain neutral. And we go, wow, their lives look so easy. There's never any hardship. And we'll get into that some more. The problem with Christians, as we look at our calling and all, we don't expect there to be hardships. We don't expect it to not go well when the norm in the Bible is that it will. When we are called to live supernatural lives, what does that mean to you? That means, oh, that we're going to have supernatural power, right? You know what else it means? It means that the natural for everybody else is not good enough for you. You're going beyond their natural to a higher level of resistance because you're dangerous to the enemy. Have you ever noticed that uh, Christian women seem to have a harder time giving birth? I don't mean the actual labor process. I mean having babies. When we look at just the women that are in this church, have you girls not struggled to bring forth life? It's because the life that is in you, God called you to bring forth righteous children. Uh, Malachi says that. Genesis 18 says that. So who opposes it? The enemy, of course. But if you're a Buddhist... You know, if you're a Hindu, who's opposing that? Just the laws of nature. That's it. Just, just germs and those kind of things. But there's no spiritual forces opposing them, trying to keep them from having kids. Because they're on that team. They've made a treaty. Does that make sense? 
Okay. Psalm 91, we're in the shade. We're in the shelter, right? First hint that this is, is maybe not the right way to look at it is he says, the Lord is my refuge, my fortress. Why do you need a refuge and a fortress? Because you are at war. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. What? There's going to be somebody trying to snare me? There's going to be pestilence? He will cover you with his feathers. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. I don't have time to teach it again, but the Lord doesn't have feathers. He's teaching this prayer show that we have on the wall over here with the tzitzit on it, those tassels from the four corners, like the Lord were covering you in that. Because the Lord gave that to Jewish people as a symbol to them of his authority. Those who take refuge in the Lord, he covers us with his authority. That's what that means. That's a Jewish word picture, a Hebrew word picture. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your right side. 10,000 at your right hand, but you will not, it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Now we see, oh wow, we're going to observe. We're going to see the punishment of the wicked. And everybody forgets that 1,000 fell at one side and 10,000 at another. They forget the fowler snare. snare. They forget the pestilence. They forget what stalks at night and all of those things. That's normal for the Christian. You're put in that position so that the Lord can deliver you from it, and He's shown to be a big God. You're shown to have really trusted Him. What is normal for you? It's normal for you to be in trouble and God deliver you from the trouble. You can expect it. It will happen. That's what we signed up for. That's why Jesus warned the young man who followed Him. Hey, buddy, foxes have holes in the ground. Uh, Birds have nests. Son of man doesn't even have a rock to lay his head on. When you follow me, you're giving up the right to all of the comfortable things that the world has. Now that's balanced with seek first the kingdom, and everything will be added unto you. God will give you what you need to perform your calling. He even wants to bless you as you perform your calling. But what is normal for us is to strive, to struggle. The man, Israel, how did he get that name? Come on, y'all, help me. How did he get? He was what? He was wrestling. You want to be called a prince with God? That's what we're called to be. That's what Christians are. We're little pieces of the big prince from God. The real Israel is Jesus. Not that there's not a natural one. There is. Israel means prince with God. How did he get the name? Because he contended. He struggled alongside God. So what are you called to do? You're called to strive to struggle, to refuse to let go of dreams, to refuse to let go of vision, to refuse to let go of the calling until daylight comes. See, that's what that whole story is about. You can argue, was it an angel or was it God? What difference does it make? One represents the other. The point of the story is that the man was blessed because he refused to give up the struggle. Most Christians I know are looking for a place where they don't have to struggle and forming convenient theology that keeps them from struggling. That was never God's will. What's that have to do with us? We're struggling. And that's a good sign. We're supposed to struggle. You want a healthy marriage? Don't you tell me you have a healthy marriage and there's no struggles. If there are no struggles in your marriage, one of you has totally yielded your will to the other and just become a robot. One's become God to the other one. The reason there are struggles is because you are both trying to find God's will. 
You are both trying to figure out how to compromise, love each other, and submit to God's will in your life. There are times one of you may be out of order and the other in order is beside the point. Health comes from the struggle. Strength comes from the struggle. That's how you work things out. Show me a company where nobody ever argues. And I'll show you a company that is full of yes men that don't care about the uh, goal and purpose of the company. It's even a temptation that I've seen in work. You think, well, they don't care. Why am I standing up and fighting about this? They never do what I say anyway. So when you see them going down the wrong path, you just smile and sit back. Right? Have you all never seen that in a workplace? happens in the kingdom all the time. Where the health is is when there is contention, when there is some dissent that shows you where God's will is. That's why Paul said it's good that, that disputes arise among you. It has to be. That's how you find out where God's will is. If none of you have the courage to say, Eric, I think you might be wrong, it means you don't care about the vision of the church, you don't care about me, and ultimately you're not with me. You're just hanging out watching to see what happens. But if you care enough and there's some contention... It gives us the opportunity to seriously seek God and see if we're headed the right way. Is this a natural drawing back of the bowstring or is the arrow trying to get out of the bow? You you follow me? That's what it's supposed to be. Well, you can keep reading Psalm 91, but what I wanted to get to is all the way down in verse 14. We've got all the commanding angels concerning you and trading on cobras and all those things. Here's the thing that most Christians never begin to realize. Verse 14. 14, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. We say, oh, wow, we're going to be saved. We're going to have long lives. What a blessing. And we totally skip over, I will be with him in trouble. See, God called us to a life filled with trouble. So that in a crooked and perverse generation, you can shine like the brightness of the heavens. The more trouble you're in, the more opportunity you have to shine. I told you all this not not that long ago. It was something I heard in Israel, a lady named Rebecca Bremer, who grew up. Loving the Lord, her father was a biblical prophecy guy, and he wrote books, and he's pretty well respected. I, I don't have any idea what his stances are, but I got the impression from listening to the teaching that I don't agree with most of them. But if he didn't do anything else, and he may have done great things, I don't know, but if he didn't do anything else, something beautiful that he did was raise a woman that loves the Lord, that is a prayer warrior, and that is awesome. And something that she quoted, she said, You're supposed to be a city... And everybody answers, on a hilltop. You're supposed to be a light, and you don't hide a light under a, everybody says, bushel. said, what do lights do? They shine. And she'd look at you with this kind of goofy smile. You know, she'd wait, and you're like, yeah, and? She'd go, so shine. Shine. Christians, that's what you're supposed to do. Shine. said, and God never called you to be a loudspeaker. He called you to shine. The way that you shine is not by your words. The way that you shine is by being put in a dark environment and light coming from you that brings light everywhere else. That's how you shine. Well, what's that have to do with a calling? If you are called to be a light, if you are called to achieve something, you can count on being put in dark places as a part of the calling so that you can shine. If the layoff never comes, nobody ever gets to see 
that you have a peace and a contentment that they don't have. If you never have sick children, nobody ever gets to see that God comes through for you. And that even when He doesn't, you love Him and you pray and you hang in there. God gets to see that. I mean, people get to see it. God already knows it. Okay. Psalm 91 shows us He will be with us in trouble. So we pray about things even when they're predetermined because prayer is necessary to move the heavenlies to cause things to happen on the earth. We need to adjust our thinking to what is normal or the difficult times. That's what's normal because we're called of God. We're going to make that adjustment. I told you all in Israel there are mountain chains that run from the northern part of the kingdom all the way down through the south. The left-hand side, for the most part, is where all the rainfall occurs. It's where all of the... Uh, between the sea and the mountain range, and I wish those two maps were on top of each other so you could see it. Uh, uh, watch. Mountains are over here. Over here. Those maps are supposed to be on top of each other and so you can put them over. The majority of the land has less rainfall than the majority. Uh, than the minority. The land between the ocean and the mountains is more fertile. It's, it's the uh, Rose of Sharon. It's, it's the breadbasket of, of Israel. Uh, all kind of beautiful things happen there. If you were going to settle the land, you would settle on that side because it's where it's nice. Kind of like Lot who looked at the, the plain and said, he, oh, I, I'm going where it's well watered. Right? That's where he went. But Abraham, the man called by God, went another way where it was not. It's interesting to note that of the 350 or so cities in the Bible that are mentioned by name that you can still find today, some 300 of them are on the right side, not the left side. The right side being the arid side, the dry side. The other 50 cities on the left side where everything was easy and well watered. God called His people, Israel, and us, church, those that have been grafted in or supported by their root, to live lives that are in arid places. So that when the flower blooms in the desert... It's noticed as opposed to the flower blooming anywhere else. We are called to do the impossible for God. That's what we're called to do. As we adjust our thinking in that way, then we can be better prepared for the calling, better able to stand it. Here's what happened to Israel, and here's what happens to us. Not only are we tempted not to pray, because, Lord, either it's predetermined it's going to happen or it's not, and we only pray when we're in trouble, but the other thing that we tend to do is those mountains were high places. Turn to Numbers 33. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 33. It's on page 190. No, I mean it is on page 190, but on page 191 is where we're going to be reading from. Verse 50, on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images, their cast idols, and demolish all their high places. What were they supposed to do when they went into the land? They were supposed to destroy the high places. Turn to Psalm 73. You'll be hanging a right and going towards the middle of the Bible. Pass up Job. 
Put your finger at Psalm 73 and I'll read that to you in a minute. Why do you think God wanted the high places destroyed? The high places were all in those mountaintops. Okay? The high places are where the people of, of the land would go to worship their gods. So number one, they were dedicated to foreign gods. Number two, it was at a place where they could go stand on the mountains and look over. Who were Philistine gods? Name one. Or, or some. Dagon. Now, it, it, all of these gods, whether we're talking about Philistine or Egyptian, all of the pagan gods were gods over uh, harvest. They were god over uh, water, uh, fertility, all of these natural things that you could see. They worshipped the creation, basically. Well, from the mountain peaks, they could look over their fields and worship their God who had brought them such beautiful fields, right? They could worship their God who they were hoping to bring them children. Easier to raise children in a place like that. God wanted all of those places destroyed for a couple reasons. Number one, He didn't want people worshipping false gods. Secondly, he did not want the Israelites to worship in the way that the peoples there did. Do you know what happened? Do you all remember in the time of what well, happened all through history, but in the time of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Who was in the north? Jeroboam, son of Nebat. you all remember him? You hear him all through the book of Kings, all through the book of Chronicles. Every king was measured by Jeroboam after this. Jeroboam reinstituted all of the high places. Now, the high places never really left. They were there, and you can see them sprinkled throughout. In fact, Moses told uh, Israel that because they worshipped on the high places, or because they would, they would be diaspora. I mean, that would happen. But in the time of Jeroboam, he reinstituted them, and they started to sacrifice to God on high places. Now, does this seem like a good idea? Well, sure. It was more convenient. The mountains were closer to him than going all the way to Jerusalem where the temple was. Were his intentions noble? Well, sure, I just want people to be able to worship God. After all, they may not, may not travel all the way down to Jerusalem. He said, and besides, we're kind of at war with the southern kingdom. If they go there, they may want to stay there. They may think God is there, and I want them to stay in my kingdom. You know, all fairly pure intentions for, for human beings, you know, not God-type thoughts. You know, if we just put some up on these mountains, we'll put some in the high places in Samaria, we'll put some on the mountain chains, that, that'll be good. It'll be a place they can go and they, they can get close to God, right? Mountaintops have got to be closer than, uh, than the valleys, right? Here's the problem. The reason God said destroy all the high places is when they got up there, they were living on the arid side. They were living on the side there was a struggle and they would see something. They would see these people that served pagan gods in their lives were easy. Everything was simple for them. And they'd begin to desire. And in their hearts, they would long to leave their calling. They would long to leave their struggle in the hard places where they're going to shine like stars to go to where it was easy. There's a natural inclination in man to gravitate towards whatever is easiest for us. There are high places in our lives. We're going to read Psalm 73 and then we'll talk about the high places in our lives. You're on Psalm 73, page 650. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw their prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. 
From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds knows no limit. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have, be, would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. God knew that if they worshipped on the high places, that they would be drawn to worship foreign gods that made the lives of those people easier. That they would begin to envy the things that the world had. Now that's ancient Israel. What about us? When you look around you and you see, golly, my life is such a struggle. I never seem to have ten extra dollars. And when I do, something new comes up. Man, everybody at work can get away with all these things. And the moment I do thus and so, I get nailed. Why? And you start to resent the struggle. It's easy to look over the work cubicle. It's easy to look over the neighbor's fence, to turn on the TV. After all, we're hearing God wants you blessed. And look and see and go, wow, those lives are so carefree. Now, I'm not talking about deserting Jesus. Do you know many of the kings in the Old Testament, the Lord says this about him. says, they did good. They did this and this and this. But they did not destroy the high places. You know what that's like? It's like Christians who love the Lord. We're serving Him. We're doing things for Him. But in our heart, there are still high places where we're longing for the benefits that lie outside of the kingdom. I'll give you a real obvious one that hopefully nobody here is really afflicted with just to get it out there, obviously. The guy that is married, right? He's got a godly wife, very happy with all of that, but has a wandering eye. That's a high place in his life. Oh, men never act on it. He's just gazing from the mountains out into what the other people have. You know? How sinful. How wrong. And all of us seem to have high places in our lives. We have to be very careful that when we get a thought, we put it through the strainer. Is this thought a desire for what the world has? Or is this thought something that God has given me because He desires to bless me in this area? This is why I got so mad I could have picked up uh, uh, something and thrown it at the TV when I heard that preacher on TV saying, are you tired of seeing the drug dealer drive your vehicle? Are you tired of seeing the lost with your wealth? Because the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. Yeah, he's quoting Scripture, but he's totally ignoring the context of the Bible. No, I'm not envious. There's not a high place in my life where I'm peeking over the edge, looking to see what they have, wanting it. It's all around us. I don't want it. I want to be right where God wants me to be. And you know what that means? It means we're going to struggle. And it means people are going to see God in the struggle. And we're going to be declared princes with God because we chose the struggle rather than the temporary pleasures of this world. Do you know Moses gave up all the pleasures of Egypt for the God that he couldn't even see? Same thing with us. Faith has always been the same way. Be very careful what you let creep in your heart. Psalm 121 says, I will look unto the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. What on earth did that mean? 
That was the first scripture I ever learned. What did it mean? I didn't know until I went to Israel. I look under the mountains. Where does my help come from? Does that mean the Lord comes from the mountains? No, it's just the opposite. He's looking going, will I look to those high places on the mountain? Is that where my help will come from? Will I yield and become like the Philistines? Will I chase after the things of the world? No, my help will come from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And then he goes through a whole teaching about preserving you from evil, not letting your foot slip, not letting the sun smite you, not letting the moon smite you. Just like Psalm 91. But you're in all of those positions and He's protecting you. Once you adjust your thinking to hang on to the calling that I'm going to struggle, it's part of it, let's look forward to it, let's embrace it, let's count on winning the struggle. Once you do that, then you don't resent it. And here's how you defeat all of it. We did it this morning. Back in Psalm 73. That's why I didn't turn from it. I'm sorry. He said, uh, when I tried to understand all this, verse 16, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. You want to get things in proper perspective. You want to follow your calling, not resent the struggle. Do you want to learn how to pray with power? Do you want to know how to not desire the things of the world? You need to enter the sanctuary of God. A little bit of time in the sanctuary of God will show you that thought I have for a Brand new Casio G-Shock watch. Analog, (laughs) digital. Beautiful, nicest watch they've ever made. Ten-year warranty. Solar and atomic. Okay, that desire I have. When you enter worship, you can begin to offer that up to God and say, Lord, is this a high place in my life? Am I just wanting what I see that others have? Or are you giving me this as a desire of my heart so that you can fulfill it and I can glorify you for it? That's the difference. And sometimes it is terribly hard to know. Terribly hard. You know why? Your flesh still has a big voice. I wanted a truck so bad. Had a 350 in it. It was white, extended cab, bed liner, big uh, toolbox in the back, chromed out. Had uh, guardrails down the side, uh, spray-in bed liner, nice CD player, power six-way seats, heated, right? I got it, and I had a very, very low note. I got a fantastic deal. Do you know how I ended up with that thing? I saw it. I didn't know I was standing on a high place looking over. I thought to myself, because man has the ability to justify whatever he wants, thought to myself, if God wants me to have that, then I will come back in two weeks. If it's still here, then that will be my sign that God wants me to have it. I came back in two weeks. It was there. I had the credit for it. I had the finances for it. I had everything except God's will for it. And I loved my truck. I really did for about 90 days when I had to sell it. And I had to sell it because God knew that things were coming in my future that I didn't know were coming. Was it, is it wrong to want nice things? Not at all. Is it wrong to see something somebody else has and appreciate it? Not at all. Is it wrong to notice somebody else's blessing and want to be blessed? Not at all. But it must be in God's will, in God's timing. Because you were called to a struggle, not called to a paradise. You were called to a place where God gives you a desire for something and you only see it come about in order to glorify God in your life. We are not like the pagans that serve God to get from God. 
We serve God to serve Him. And what we get is a secondary thing. That's why you seek the kingdom first, and then everything's added. He will give you everything that you need to perform your calling. But when you go out to accumulate, when you go out to lay up for yourselves treasure, it's just like those high places in our lives, and it distracts you from the calling. In that case, what it kept me from doing was paying a house note. I had no idea the changes that were coming in my job and what God would require of me to see other people get saved, like Darren Schumacher. You know, like those people. I didn't know. He did know. So I didn't need that. You have to price the calling of God on your life is of more value than anything you could gain. So every decision then becomes, wow, Lord, I know I'm struggling and I'm starting to see some victory. Should I do this or not? That would obviously make my life easier, but my life being easy is not what it's all about. What it's all about is doing your will. Is this something you're trying to give me or something I'm trying to give myself? And you know what? He will show you, but it's the hardest thing on earth. And I'll tell you, He'd give you all kinds of things. Look at our lives, y'all. Look at how He's blessed us. I'm not preaching against the blessing of God. I want us to have nice cars. I want us to have nice houses, good jobs. I want us to be blessed so that we can bless other people. But God never called you to escape every struggle in your life. It will never happen that way. If it did, prosperity would kill the gospel in your life. What the, what the devil's not able to do through persecution, he does through affluence. We fill our lives with toys and things that keep us from the presence of God, and it's not supposed to be that way. When we're talking about high places... Here's something you need to know. And this may not even work because it's cold now. Matt and I have been on this Turkish coffee kick. When you grind coffee normally, it's kind of coarse. It is made to put in a filter, pour water through it. That way all the grounds are caught. The way that Turkish coffee is made, though, is you grind it very finely. And when you grind it finely... Then you pour water in it, and some of the grounds rise, but they eventually settle to the bottom if it's ground finely enough, and then you drink it. The water is like God's Word, and the grinds are like your flesh, and the cup is you that we're holding up right here. As you pour this in, what the Word will begin to show you, what the presence of God will be... Oh, there's no water in it. So much for my demonstration. Yeah, yeah, you need the Word. What you're going to have to imagine is that this began to fill. How do you know whether the coffee was ground finely enough? Whether or not it floats or sinks. The product that the Master's looking for are the grounds that sink to the bottom and leave the water at the top. This is like your life. If you have been refined on the right side of the mountain, I promise I'll bring it around. If you've been refined by struggles, if you have been ground by God correctly, as the words applied to your life, you produce the desired result. The ground sink to the bottom, the coffee rises to the top. If you have not been ground finely enough, if you still have too much of you in you, what you see is some of the ground sink to the bottom, but a bunch of them stay at the top, rendering it undrinkable to the master. So what's the answer? What do you have to do? You get refined a little more. You skim it off and you start again. 
You skim it off and start again. Your desires that you have in your life, what you do is you offer them up to the Word of God. You offer them up to the Spirit of God. You let Him pour His Word on it. Let Him pour Himself into it. And you see whether it floats or sinks. See, that is how we make our decisions. That's how we know where we are in the kingdom. Now, here's the God's honest truth. It doesn't matter how finely I grind this. I can't get it to perfection. There's always some that floats. Always some that floats. Now, I don't require perfection because I'm not a perfect person. I drink a few grounds in my coffee. But what does the Word say about God? Be perfect as He is perfect. So He does require perfection. You keep being ground. You be willing to go through that so that you can distinguish whether it's a high place thought or a God thought. So that you can hang on to the vision. So that you can pray until you see it come about on earth. I was going to go to 1 Samuel 13, and I'm not, because we're almost out of time, and I think I've made my point. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul is there. Saul is an anointed king of Israel with a changed heart, a good guy at this point in his life. And here's the thing. Samuel says, Saul, you're going to go to war with the Philistines. I want you to wait seven days, and on the seventh day, I will show up, and I will be there, and I'll sacrifice for you. Saul is standing there. One day passes. He sees the Philistines coming. Two days pass. He sees more garrisons coming. Three days pass. He sees more. Four days, his men are quaking with fear. Five days, they're all terrified in him too. Six days, and he's thinking, well, at least Samuel will be here tomorrow. On the seventh day, he looks around. He doesn't see Samuel anywhere. All of his men are scared, and he begins to think to himself, wow, Samuel's not coming. And so as he walks out to make the sacrifice himself, which is something Samuel told him not to do and God did not honor, as he's making the sacrifice himself, he shows up, Samuel shows up, still on the seventh day, just later on the seventh day than Saul expected. Does this remind you of anything? He was called to a battle. He saw persecution all around him. He was being ground, refined on the right side of the mountain. And deliverance was a long way in coming. And the day of deliverance came and he, he grew tired. He didn't, didn't think it was coming. And Samuel said, what is it that you're doing, man? The kingdom's going to be torn from you and given to somebody else who will produce its fruit now. Saul said, why? Why? Look, look, here's what happened. Let me explain to you logically why I'm doing what I'm doing. Let me defend myself on the basis of wisdom. He says, I thought. Now look, Samuel's not coming. All the men are quaking with fear. And I felt as if I had to act. And so I was compelled to offer the sacrifice. Wouldn't any reasonable person have done this? Now we know about Saul's life after this. You be very careful what thoughts you allow to stay there. They will cause feelings in you. And as your thoughts cause feelings, they will compel you to act. Now some thoughts cause good feelings. The thought that God will always come through for you. The thought that God is your refuge, your tower of strength. They will cause you to feel secure in Him, confident in Him. They will compel you to act in a manner that is consistent with your faith. But other thoughts, like, what if He allows me to go broke? Or what if I lose my job? What if I can't feed my kids? You're not even allowed to entertain them. Because as you entertain them, they cause feelings in you. They would cause feelings in anybody. And as your feelings begin to dwell in you, they compel you to act certain ways. If you want to be successful in the kingdom, if you want to complete the call on your life, number one, you have to learn to commit things to prayer so that things can happen on earth. 
Number two, you have to look at a struggle as normal and refuse to climb up on those high places and see how it would be if you weren't serving God. Don't let the words come out of your mouth. Well, back when I was in the world, I would have. That's a high place stamped on your forehead. You know? That's, that's the mark of a baby Christian. Then number three, don't let your thoughts, don't entertain thoughts that you're not supposed to have. They compel you to do things you shouldn't. Y'all go read Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 13. It'll tell you all about it. Here's what alleviates all concern. And we're going to finish this message in under an hour, so y'all give me a, a second for two more scriptures, okay? Here, here's how you can rest confidently in the thought when you're surrounded by struggles, when your prayer seems to be bouncing off the ceiling, when all you see are coffee grounds floating to the top, too much flesh in you and not enough God, when that's all you see, when your thoughts are beginning to attack you and you're having trouble casting them down, like Paul said to cast down. Turn to Psalms 57. Y'all following me with any of this? Y'all with me? Y'all going to stand up and leave and never come back? (laughs) Psalm 57. This is on page 639. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. For in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Now, there's a disaster in his life. He's taking refuge in what? The authority of God. That's that shadow under the wings that's been under that prayer cloth. I will cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. Is it your job to perform the calling on your life? No. It is God's job to perform it in you. It's your job just to be obedient. If you're in the meat grinder, if you're in the time of blessing, no matter where you are, stay open to Psalms. We've got one more. No matter where you are, God's job is to perform His calling in you. When you look around, you say, well, He called us to start this church. You know, why aren't there more people? Well, that's, that's God's problem. It's our job to be obedient. It's God's problem to bring it about. Here's what this frees you from. Now, you spouses can all relate to this. If you can't, then you're a liar. Okay? And those of you that don't have spouses yet, you will one day. And think about your co-laborers in the kingdom. Well, I have this calling on my life, and so-and-so won't get right with God, and because they're disobedient, I'm not going to fulfill the calling on my life. That's a fear people have, right? And you put pressure on each other. You try to control your spouse. Make them act a certain way. And if it's not your spouse, it's your co-worker in the kingdom. You try to make them act a certain way so that you'll perform your calling. No, it's not your calling. It is God's purpose in your life. And it's His job for Him to be in control of everything. And then it works out. It's not your job to control anything. Does that make sense? Yeah, boy. Now, here's the thing. You see, that's hard. No, that's liberating. Once I found out, I don't have to control you guys. I don't have to control Jennifer. I don't even have to control my kids. I have to instruct them. I have to be obedient to what God says for me to do. And that's it. That's the only response. It's like living with a budget. At first, it seems restricting, and you hate it. You think, my God, I can't do this, and I can't do that. Until the day comes when you go, wow. I can do this up to this amount. 
And I don't have to worry about it. It's guilt-free. I don't have to worry about what happens tomorrow because it's been planned for. That's what living in obedience to the Spirit's like. You don't have to control anything. And when He says do something, you're totally free to do it without fear of consequence because He's going to take care of it. It's a life of freedom. It's awesome. You'll perform the calling He put on you because it's His job for you to perform it. And God doesn't fail. So, well, what about all the people that never did? They decided to not be obedient to God. You say, well, I'm being obedient, but so-and-so who's the other part of my calling is not being obedient. God's big enough to fix that. Pray. Pray. Love. Set an example. And you know what? Next week they'll be praying that about you. You know, I found it pretty funny in my life that at times I'm praying because my wife, the weaker vessel, is not doing what I think she ought to be doing. Then I look back, you know, and I go, wow, that was true. The next week, though, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. God must be equally able to work with those that think everybody else is wrong and they're always right. As you know, I mean, God works through it. One more scripture. Turn to Psalm 30, 138. When y'all heard that song going up to the high places to tear the devil's kingdom down, did you think that you were going up to a spiritually high place so that you could tear the devil's kingdom down? Or did you think that the high place was the devil's kingdom? You never thought about it. When Ron can only singing about that, whether he knows it or not, you're going up to the high places because that is the devil's kingdom and you are tearing it down. God is... On the other side, the lonely places, the deserts, on the other side of the mountain, where his people are in a place where everybody can see when they shine. Not in a place of total prosperity and blessing. You're going up to the high places to tear the devil's kingdom down. God goes so far in Ezekiel to say, you whore, you nation I called you, you're just like a whore. He said, except that when you commit these acts of lewdness, for all of the nations to see on the high places, you don't even accept payment. You know, the high places are spoken of as horrible things in the Bible. We're not going up to a high place to do something good. We're going up to a high place to tear it down. What that speaks of is in your heart tearing down all of those little mountain peaks where you might gaze into someone else's life and desire what they have and covet. That doesn't only occur with the world. Was uh, Uriah lost? So who's Uriah? Uriah was a soldier of Israel, a man of God, a man of noble character. And he had a blessing. You know what he had? He had a beautiful wife who liked to bathe. You know, we, we like beautiful women that bathe. That's a good thing. They don't stink. And that was a blessing God gave him. There was another man, David, who his calling was to defeat all the enemies that were around him. And in the time when kings go off to war, David stayed home. In other words, he's not pursuing the calling in that moment. He did, however, go up to a high place in his life where he could see outside of his life into somebody else's. He's peeking over the fence, and he saw what another man was blessed with. He had a thought. That thought produced in him certain feelings. He wasn't allowed to have that thought. Those feelings shouldn't have been there, but they were, and it compelled him to act in a certain way. It's the single lowest spot in David's life. He killed another servant of God to have his wife. Now, all of us have done, maybe not that, but things where we had thoughts and feelings that we shouldn't have had and we felt compelled to act. 
And in our compulsion to act, we sin. Just like David, God works it out. Bathsheba eventually became his wife. Uriah is an honored man in the Bible. They suffered loss for a time and then uh, were considered in the lineage of Christ. I mean, so their lives were not failures because they made a mistake. Your lives are not failures if you make a mistake. Here's what you need to know. In Psalm 138, verse 6, though the Lord, this is page 696, though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. So is it good to be lowly or proud? Lowly, right? Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand you save me. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hand. Your life is God's work. You are His craftsmanship in Christ Jesus created to do good works, the Bible even says. He's not going to abandon you because you didn't get part of it right. Don't abandon him in your thoughts by climbing the high places and looking to see what other gods provide. Not in any area. Root out the high places in your heart. Root out everything that would keep you from performing what he called you to perform. Be obedient to him in the arid and dry places. And you know what you'll see? You'll see him working in your life to form you, to shape you, to give you everything that you need. You don't need to convince him of what you need. He knows it before you ask. Why would he know it before you ask? He built you. He knows what you were called to do. I know a radio needs knobs because they're supposed to have it. So if I'm building something about halfway through, I know it needs knobs. You know? He, he knows what you need in your life. So you need to find out what it is he wants for you to have. What he wants for you to do. Then you need to offer enough prayer for the angels to be able to move the heavens for it to occur. Then you need to make sure that the thoughts and things that you're praying about are not with wrong motives. They're not from the high places. Then, once you're sure of that, you rest in the fact that it is His purpose in your life and He will fulfill it. You don't have to. You don't have to strain. You ever seen a vine strain to produce a grape? You ever walked by and seen uh, a plant giving birth to a, a watermelon and just writhing in pain? No, it's effortless. It's what they're called to do. It's what they do. They produce fruit. Same with us. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.